We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Villato. This podcast is being brought to you by the good people at Untuck It and Manscaped. Today, we're going to dive into the All-22 Game Tape Review of the Giants' 37-18 loss to the Dallas Cowboys. After matching the Lions and Cardinals yard for yard, first down for first down, and in time of possession, the wheels fell off against the Cowboys, who outgained the Giants' 429-271 to in yards. In the game, the Giants curiously won the time of possession. The score in the fourth quarter was a little closer than it probably should be. The Cowboys missed a field goal and turned the ball over after converting a first down in the red zone. Um, In addition to that, they also throughout this game turned the ball over inside their own 15-yard line. That was on the first possession. These are kind of the reasons the Giants had a chance to win time of possession and keep it close for a little while. In a game where, to be honest, it was decided at the line of scrimmage and at the second level. The difference in play, and me and Nick talked about this before we got on, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, but of the Cowboys' offensive line versus the Giants' linebackers at the second level, and then vice versa, the Giants' offensive line versus those two stud Cowboys linebackers at the second level was the reason why this game was not close. Um, Am I crazy, Nick? There's a lot to talk about here, but... The one thing I do want to start out with is that first possession of the game because I do think it was so important, that first two possessions, I'd just say. Am I crazy, Nick, to think that if I was ever gifted this opportunity to be an NFL head coach and my team was 2-6 and six against the division leader and they just got a turnover inside that own division leader's own 15-yard line, I would probably always go for it on fourth and goal from the two because worst case, Dallas gets the ball back at their own two. Best case, you keep. Best case, you keep and you build on the momentum rather than give it back to him. But then by kicking a field goal here, I mean, 
What kind of confidence does Shermer show in himself as a play caller or his offense by opting to kick there instead of finding a play in his playbook to put seven on the board? Well, first off, you're crazy for other reasons than just that. Yeah, that's let's, for just, sure. let's just establish that. But yeah, man, it doesn't instill a lot of confidence in the offense whatsoever. But I think Shermer was like, hey, we're at home. Gets the Cowboys. This is prime time. Came up with a big play. The defense, I think we just need to put points on the board. We can't let the defense go out there with a zero in the offensive column. So that's what I think Shermer was thinking at that specific time. And I mean, I wish I wish the Giants punched it in, obviously. I mean, you're on the eight-yard line. You have that zone read out of shotgun, motion Tate into block on the inside zone. Barkley stutters and missed the hole to the strength on that one play. It looked like there was a hole there, Dan. Am I crazy to think that? Are you talking about the motion Tate back in, the, the, the obvious run, second and goal? Yes. <sighs> yeah. There was a hole first split second, Nick, but, I mean, it wasn't much from my point of view here. I look at it like this, Nick, and why I really just hate the idea of motioning the wide receiver back and going tight on second and goal from under center, really just showing run and executing run on such a high frequency of these plays where Pat Shermer does decide to motion that wide receiver back into the line of scrimmage because I look at it like kind of like Texas Hold'em. I'm a big fan of the game. I play a lot of poker. Some might call me a semi-professional pro poker player. But if I always – I'll look at it like this, Nick. I don't know if you're that familiar with the game. Are you familiar at all with Hold'em? Not really. Okay. But maybe some of our fans are, and they'll appreciate this. If I always check raise on flops where I hit a set, and just to give you a little little heads up, Nick, a set is one of the best hands you can hit on a flop in poker. It's super disguised. But if I always check raise when I hit a flop set, and I never check raise when I hit a combo draw, any kind of draw, or even something like top pair, then I become too predictable, and I become too easy to play against. I have to mix up that exact play, and the play there is the check raise. So in this situation, the play for the Giants is to motion the receiver back and run. So if Shermer always runs the ball when he motions that wide receiver back in type in a heavy personnel package, in a tight formation, then the defensive coordinators are probably noticing and the Giants are becoming probably too predictable. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, it is a fair assessment, but looking at that second and goal play, Dan, I mean, Jalapio misses Smith sure. on the second level block. Remmers missed Lawrence as the line shifted right before the snap to a, I want to say it was a two technique and a four technique with Lawrence and Collins. I almost say Dexter Lawrence, but obviously Demarcus Lawrence and Collins penetrate the A gap on Zeitler. Barkley failed to run right off his ass. That was the place to run, in my opinion, was right yeah. off of Zeitler's ass. It would have been a one on one versus uh, Xavier Woods. And I think that's Barkley fair, Nick. I think I think that. you've convinced me, Nick. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think it's fair and fair to say you convinced me here. I mean, no, I know you're you're still right though in the same sense though, Dan, because the Giants are pretty predictable with these runs. It's just. On this play, it was execution at the same time. And I do sure. feel Barkley must be more decisive. And we'll get to that because I want to talk about the execution because it does go back to what I said at the beginning of this about how, you know, the difference to me was pretty obvious when you looked at the the Giants offensive line, their inability to get to the second level and take some of those linebackers, Smith and Sean Lee, Jalen Smith and Sean Lee, who played a phenomenal football game, unbelievable game for the Cowboys. And they couldn't get to them at the second level on these run plays. The execution's bad, but the execution has been bad for a long time in this run game under Hal Hunter, the offensive line coach. In the you know heavy inside zone, Pat Shermer loves that inside zone. 
even even though Saquon Barkley, you know, played at a very different system in Penn State, is he not confident? We're going to talk about a lot of that later, Nick. But I do want to get to one more thing on this first session because it really did set the tone for me in this game because I do believe that putting up seven versus three would have made a big difference. And so what happened on that third and goal play, Nick? Because I thought that it was a nice route. Uh, a nice idea, a nice route by, by, I believe, Ellison there, 85 coming off. But Jones either didn't anticipate it fast enough to get the ball out in an accurate spot or the pressure just made it impossible. And to me, it looked like the Giants allowed an unblocked blitzer when Solder could have maybe kicked out there to pick up that blitzer. What happened there? The pressure was the main culprit, I feel like, on that play. But still, going an empty set in that situation while not having the threat of run with your best offensive player, that's kind of egregious, if you ask me, to be honest. I mean, you have Evan Ingram run to the flat. You have Rhett Ellison kind of do that stick and nod route to try to kind of create separation, which is a little bit of a longer developing route in this kind of situation. Right. But they brought a five-man pressure, including Heath off the edge, along with a tackle end stunt from Collins and Quinn, which just was not picked up by the offensive line. And yet again, the left side of that line, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, Dan, were schemed three versus two. And Hernandez was late picking up Quinn, and the rest was history. Heath gets in there as well. But I just think, man, you have to have the illusion of run or at least keep Barkley in there in pass protection, something like that. But he, he wasn't even out there on that play, and I just don't feel right. like you can do that to your best player. That's something that's just egregious, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, in my opinion, one of the worst. You know, the the, the part that really str- I struggled the most with with the Shermer during the 2019, sorry, 2019 season and that's why is this offense not run through Barkley and Ingram? Why aren't we forcing defenses to account for them on any every play in the pass and different you know different matchups, making sure that you get them in those one-on-one matchups, one of the two. The entire offense should run through them, and everything else should be opened up by running the offense through those two players. That's how the good teams do it. That's how the best teams do it. That's how the best offenses do it. They force defense to account for these players. And in this example, like you bring up, if you don't even have Barkley on the field, your best offensive player— uh, I mean, how can how can a defense account for them, Nick? Um, but it does bring me to my next point. And throughout the game, something I noticed, Nick, was this was the lightest, com- the combination of the lightest boxes the Giants have faced and Saquon Barkley has faced all season long. I noticed more six-man boxes from the opposing defense, the Cowboys, than I have seen all season long against Barkley. It was a very different game plan than the Giants have seen so far this season, in my opinion. It seemed like the Cowboys were daring both Jones and Barkley to run the ball. Um, Jalen Smith and Sean Lee made it really difficult, but at the same time, Jones found a lot of success on those zone read keepers, but Barkley really didn't find much success in the running game. What are you seeing there? Are the issues with the blocking? Is it Barkley just not looking confident and not having confidence besides his inside zone scheme, or is it the play calling? What's going on here? Because it did seem like the Giants found more success with Barkley when they were running from the shot shotgun formation than when they kind of went to the heavier personnel and lined up under center. But what else did you notice there in the run game? Well, it's kind of hard to run the football for Barkley. I think it's a combination of both the blocking and Barkley, but it is hard to run the football when there was someone right in your face. And you got to credit Rod Marinelli and that defense for slanting and just lining their defensive alignment up in such advantageous positions to take advantage of the Giants offensive line. And we talked about this a little bit before the podcast as well. Right before a lot of these snaps they would shift one of their defensive linemen to just get the offensive line thinking, and they would just attack the angles of the offensive line, and they would usually win inside, and it would crash a gap. Yeah. And that would force Saquon to stop, hesitate, which he does a lot anyways. He kind of hesitates. He's not the most decisive running back in the world. He wasn't coming out of Penn State either. But 
he hesitates and then he just tries to find something. Sometimes he tries to make something out of nothing. And those rushing lanes close very fast, especially when you have Jalen Smith and Sean Lee. And they don't even have Leighton Vander Esch, which is just a totally different thing whatsoever. I mean, it is night and day watching the New York Giants offensive line and the New York Giants linebackers versus watching the Cowboys offensive line and the Cowboys linebackers. I mean, the Cowboys offensive line gets to the second level. They seal away the linebackers. The linebackers of the Cowboys shoot their gaps. They maintain gap discipline. They're very, very aggressive. They're stout at the point of the attack. It's just not the same thing with this New York Giants football team, and it just fucking sucks to see. Yeah, Nick, I mean, listen, I think me and you are both starting to come to the the fact that Matt, the point and, you know, the realization, I guess you can say, that probably the biggest weakness for this team and the thing that just keeps holding them back game after game is that is, is that second level. It's that linebacker corpse. They're going to need to find players inside next season. They cannot repeat this. It's just not going to work. They're getting killed at the second level on run plays, on pat, whatever you pass plays as well. It's just over and over. But one thing I want to draw back to there, I'm curious about this, Nick, from a schematic standpoint. So we both notice what Rod Marinelli does and, it's excellent coaching, obviously. He's getting his line, his defensive lineman in position to make plays based on, I guess, what he's assuming will happen or maybe based on the tendency of Barkley to be a more hesitant runner. But my question is this. Obviously, if this was a tried-and-true strategy, Betcher would be doing more of these defensive line shifts right before the snap and these gap shoots to get them in position. I mean, I thought that's what this defense was to be, defensive lineman shooting gaps, but I haven't seen it as much as I would hope to. Or maybe there's just, you know, he doesn't coach it as well or he doesn't get these guys moving. But if you have a guy, play, if you have defenders playing that aggressive, is there a way that Pat Shermer could have adjusted in-game with his run game specifically to attack the style of defense Marinelli was playing with his defensive line, if that makes sense? Is there a way to adjust it with the run game? I mean, you could have tried to stretch them horizontally, but again, those linebackers are incredibly athletic, incredibly right. fast, and the New York Giants offensive line was not locating them. I did like how he adjusted after the one touchdown the Cowboys scored with that little slip screen to Barkley, and that was a huge gain. It was a huge momentum swing towards the Giants, but then they tried it again out of a different formation just a little bit later in the game, and what happened? Sean Lee nailed Saquon Barkley for a seven-yard loss. So they're a smart team and they learn from things that they see. And you wish that the Giants could have combated it in a better way, but they just couldn't figure it out because those linebackers are incredibly skilled. That line is incredibly skilled. And the Giants offensive line is subpar. Now, it's not the Giants offensive line of the past. Giants offensive line that we're, we have been accustomed to, but it's still not up to snuff to some of the better units in the league. Yeah, and I think that some of that, you know, okay, there's a lot of blame on the offensive line, and that's that's fair. I mean, they, like we said at the beginning of the pod, they're not doing a good job run blocking at the second level. That's for sure. We see it over and over. But this is an offensive line that is not grading out that poorly on pro football focus. You look at a team like the Minnesota Vikings, who, you know, some would say have a worse offensive line this season than the New York Giants. They have a worse uh, pass blocking grade overall than the Giants by a considerable margin, according to pro football focus. They're much better, you know, they're considerably better as run blockers, but they're still finding success in the pass game by moving the pocket, resetting it for Cousins, and using everything off their play action bootlegs. Things that, you know, you would think maybe would work with Daniel Jones. They worked with Case Keenum, with Pat Shermer, but you just don't see that here. You just don't see the design, like I said earlier, for Barkley, you know, running the game through Barkley Lingham. There's just things that you want to see, in my opinion, from an offensive coordinator and from an offensive game plan standpoint that you're not seeing. But I do want to draw back one more time, at least, on just what happened in this run game. Nick, did you see it? I mean, so Barkley had 14 carries for 28 yards. That's a two-yard two average. So from my 
But from my viewpoint, I feel like he faced softer boxes than he faced all season long. Is that off, or did you see it differently? Did you, or did you feel like the Cowboys were daring them to run? I mean, I didn't necessarily see them just daring them to run. I feel like the Cowboys have a lot of confidence in their personnel to where they could play against the pass and still feel like they could defend the run because of their personnel and because of those linebackers, especially and their safety being physical as well with Jeff Heath coming down near the box. He was all around the line of scrimmage and all around the box a lot. And they were blitzing him a lot as well. So I don't really feel like it was a necessarily as, Hey, you're going to run the football on us because the giants couldn't block up front and they couldn't really locate at the second level for those linebackers. So they could have these lighter boxes and focus on guys like Evan Ingram or other passing options. Yeah. And that's fair, Nick. I guess it just kind of draws back to the fact that matter is personnel's playing a huge role. I know, you know, it's easy to blame coaching and I, I'm not a huge fan of the coaching, but I do know deep down the personnel, especially on the defensive side of the ball, especially for me, for me, it's a much bigger difference um, in personnel to blame versus coaching to blame on defense but even and with offense. The, yeah, man. But even with the offense, like you need to, and we've talked about this, you need to get Evan Ingram and now he's injured, but in this game, he wasn't, you need to design more plays for him to maximize his athletic ability and his skill set, not just run him down the field as much. And you know, there's so many just quick hitches and snags and things like that. Like there are other creative ways to utilize him and Saquon Barkley, get Saquon Barkley in space. That's where he is most effective. And the one time they did, it was a huge play as I brought up before, but that's just not happening often enough with this team. I know it's maybe easier said than done, but we watch a lot of this team, Dan, and I think we could both agree. We do not see a lot of that. Oh, no, for sure. And I think you might misinterpret me. I'm actually saying the opposite. I'm saying the coaching to me is a much bigger issue on offense than it is on defense, just because on defense, the personnel is just so it's just so not there, guys. I mean, I know a lot of people really impatient about this defense. But Nick, when we went over this before the podcast, it was really interesting to me. They really just don't have much talent at all. They have some talent on the defensive line. That's for sure. They have a they have a safety who makes some some good plays in Pepper, some really big plays. And he's a tough safety and he's a good quality player. And then that's kind of it. I mean, those edge guys are okay at best. They're lined up so wide. It's just so tough to watch when they when the when the team runs the ball when those guys are lined up so wide. But even lined up that wide, they're not getting that kind of pressure that you would hope for. And then, you know, the corners are just really young. The second and then you have a then you have a 30 as you described it, a 37 year old man trying to play free safety in the NFL. So it's like it's not really and, and again, like I said last podcast, the least amount of salary cap invested and the defense side of the ball of all 32 teams is the New York Giants. It is hard to win in the NFL when you're not spending money on the defense. Or it's hard, sorry, it's hard to be a good defense when you don't have any money invested in it. And it's all either young guys on rookie deals or guys like David Mayo, who played atrocious in this game, in my opinion, who who is a, just a, a free agent, basically, a guy who, you know, a, <laughs> washed up, not washed up, but just never really made it and never really had any reason. This is a guy who has been on practice squads, has made special was in the Super Bowl for the Carolina Panthers not even playing and hasn't really played any defensive snaps since until this season and now he's expected to be a massive player in the for the Giants defense at the second level which I'm starting to learn Nick is the most important level honestly on the defense I really do believe I'm starting to believe this second level this in, this inside and outside linebacker group is really deciding games it certainly did for the Cowboys in this one um so you know to me it's just tough Nick and 
I start to look at some of the things, and I want to also talk positives on us. A lot of people have said we've been too negative or I've been too negative lately, and I totally understand that. There were some good things I saw. I mean, even Shermer, I want to give him some credit where it's due. I loved his red zone play design on the third and goal for Cody Latimer to get that touchdown. I thought that was excellent. I loved the end around to Golden Tate that went for 16 yards, uh, a few, you know, a drive or two later, because, or maybe a few drives later, because I thought that he set that up by building it off a similar look that he showed earlier where Barkley actually got the ball. But on this one, he gave it to Tate. So I kind of like when coaches do that, when they set up a, a, a play that works in, uh, later in the game by showing something similar earlier and just doing something different with it. But on the flip side, Nick, I do want to know about what your thoughts are on just the Giants' consistent kind of idea when they get inside the red zone. There was a play in the second quarter, 342. Giants are driving. Eventually, they have to sell for three. Second and six from the Dallas eight. They go back into their tight personnel. They have two wide receivers stacked to the left. It's 12, or it's either 12 or 21. I can't remember this now. And, you know, they try to run the ball here instead of trying to throw the ball into the end zone or take have some play developed like a corner route for the end zone or maybe some kind of pick route that has a receiver running underneath in the end zone. And before this play, the Giants had really only run the ball twice. It was on two shotgun plays, not, again, under center, heavy personnel type formation. It was from the gun. They got gains of seven and five. And besides that, they had moved the ball from their own 20 down to the Dallas eight by throwing the football. Um, all throw, play, all passing plays besides that. And then they get into the red zone, and they're putting themselves in this in this third and long here after running the ball uh, from the Dallas two. So Dallas, sorry, eight on second and six. So what do you think? They, do you think that the Giants really just believe that with Barkley, their best bet is to run the ball more often? Or do you think that kind of maybe it's just because it doesn't look to me, I, I should say this, it doesn't look to me like they have an advantage when it comes to the box. It looks like the Cowboys are matched up well for a run play here. Are you seeing something different there, or what do you think the motive here is here? Giants haven't had success doing this yet, and they keep trying to do it with the tight formation, with 12 personnel motioning the wide receiver in tight to block either the contained defender or block down on the linebacker or the end man on the line of scrimmage, which hasn't really been all that effective. I would like to see the Giants kind of do this at a shotgun the illusion of passing a little bit more, keep the defense on their toes. And they've had some success running out of shock and giving Saquon, like spreading it out a little bit more, spreading the wide receivers out a little bit more, spreading the field out a little bit more, giving Saquon a little bit more options to kind of hit his holes instead of having everything so congested because the Giants offensive line hasn't done the best job blocking in those situations. Saquon hasn't done the best job finding the holes in those specific situations. So personally, I would like to see a little bit more variety and go out of shotgun, throw something like a seven route you know, flat slants, stuff like they have done in the past, those little quick hitches, snag routes, things that they have utilized and incorporated in those really tight third and short and red zone kind of situations. We saw it with Evan Ingram last week on that little play. We saw it this week with Corey or with Latimer where uh, I love that play. He fakes the, the stalk block. He fakes like the pick. Right. The and he just fades away. That was a really well-schemed play by Pat Shermer, but when it comes to running the football, I do kind of want to see them spread it out, kind of like what the Cardinals did against the Giants, see if they can have any success doing it that way because it hasn't been successful. And a lot of people are kind of blaming it on Saquon's injury. I personally don't think it's Saquon's injury. I think it's the blocking up front. I think it's Saquon's decisiveness isn't exactly there. It's not necessarily all on the fact that he may not be 100%. Not a lot of people are 100% right now in the NFL. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I mean, I think 
for for you guys listening in, if you want to know what our main takeaway is with why this running why this running game is just consistently struggling, it's it's the blocking first and foremost. I mean, there was a play first and ten from the Dallas forty one with thirteen minutes left in the third quarter, a really key drive for the Giants, um, where they were literally a block away from springing a touchdown run there, a forty one yard touchdown run. Barkley would have been able to get in space, cut back likely against the defensive back, and then it was all green from there. He had so much space, but on this play, they motioned the receiver back. Uh, from right to left here to kind of get that contain uh, last defensive back like Nick saying, and that allows the Cowboys to motion in. They only have two linebackers in the box. Again, it's another six-man box for the Cowboys, four defensive line, two linebackers. It allows Jalen Smith, 54, to shift from where he was lined up before the snap, before they motioned Fowler, and that was he was lined up when, when Fowler was on the right side of the formation. He was lined up just over the right shoulder of the Giants' right tackle, and then he moves all the way, motions all the way into the A-gap, and so does Lee. And then Smith ends up making the play here for a gain of one for Barkley, where Solder is supposed to get there to the second level, and if Solder just gets that second-level block and seals off Smith— this is probably a touchdown because Barkley, he does his job well. And all that's left is some last defender here who, uh, you know, defensive back coming down. And Barkley has enough space there to cut back. And this, to me, was just a microcosm of the inconsistency and the poor execution from the Giants' run game. Is this, does this feel like anything that's going to, you know, improve now, you know, over these final, final, you know, seven games of the season? Or where, where do you stand on it, Nick? Or do they just need more talent on the offensive line? I think it's going to be a matchup kind of thing. I mean, things can improve. Cohesion can also improve. And on that specific play that you were just talking about, Quinn was covered down as a six tech on Ingram. And Solder on that play was kind of left with no true responsibility because that three tech slanted okay. inside and took Hernandez with him. So at that moment, you want Solder to realize that he kind of got caught up on the Quinn Ingram blocking situation and couldn't climb to that second level. And like in that ideal world, Ingram would handle Quinn, Solder climb up to the second level, Zeitler on the pole from the backside will take that play side linebacker, which was Lee. What actually did materialize was the blocks, but it didn't, the play did not work out in the touchdown that you laid out before because Solder just could not get away from the Ingram-Quinn situation. In terms of this offensive line improving, it can happen. Units have bad days. Defensive coordinators scheme differently. Those are all things that can happen. So it's not like it's going to be linear going downwards, but you would like to see this unit just play better and give bigger holes for their star running back because a lot of questions are falling at Barkley's feet when people aren't looking at it as a unit. This is a unit, an offensive unit led by Pat Shermer, led by Daniel Jones, and the blocking does need to assist Saquon Barkley as well as Saquon Barkley needs to kind of utilize better vision. It's all interconnected. Yep. No doubt. And before we flip it over to the defensive side of the ball, Nick, a couple more notes I thought was really interesting. Golden Tate, 67 snaps. Darius Slayton, 66 snaps. Benny Fowler, 41. Giants, obviously, like most teams, used 11 personnel most. And Cody Latimer, 11 snaps. I'm just not for this. I'm not for this. I think Latimer is a much more talented receiver than Fowler. I think he's a better blocker on the perimeter. He's certainly bigger than Fowler. I think he makes better plays in one-on-one 50-50 balls. We saw that in the preseason with Jones. I think he has more speed. The ball that he kind of stumbled on on the first possession where Jones threw a good ball up, and that was kind of the first play in a while, Nick, where I was like, ah, shit, you know what? I do kind of miss Odell Beckham Jr. on this play because I think that's a that could be a game-changing play there on that third and 10 where Jones locates the yeah. vertical one-on-one 
run down the right sideline and Fowler kind of stumbles, or I'm sorry, Latimer kind of stumbles at the end of his route, kind of gets bumped off of it, and the ball drops not too far ahead of him and probably drops right into the hands of Beckham, who probably wouldn't stumble, probably would have separated from that route. Um, and it kind of might, might have looked like a perfect throw to Beckham, but instead looked like an incomplete, uh, slightly overthrown ball. And maybe the coaching staff kind of that put him into the doghouse, but I'm just not for it. I'm not for 41 snaps for Fowler and 11 for Latimer. I, I don't see it there. Um, I'm fine getting Slayton some run as a rookie, even though, you know, I didn't think he had a great game at all in this game, and he had a big drop on a, on a deep comeback. But where do you stand there with the kind of the personnel usage there? I personally am a bigger fan of Latimer. I mean, I in an ideal world, I wouldn't really want either of the receivers getting significant snaps, but I love Latimer and what he can give to the game when it comes to special teams. He really rose to the occasion in this game with those kickoff returns. But I'm not really 100% sure, man, because Fowler was on the street not long ago, and that could be because Latimer is on special teams and has that kind of value, whereas Fowler does not provide that. But I'm not 100% sure what the Giants see in Benny Fowler over Cody Latimer, maybe because he can line up in the slot sometimes, which you don't even see that much. I honestly am not 100% sure what they're seeing when it comes to that. Me either. Um, eventually, I hope we'll get some answers on that. And then finally, before we flip it over to the defense, I want to make one more note. And it's year three now of Evan Ingram, uh, first-round tight end the Giants draft. Obviously, he's going to go through the injury process again now. It looks like he has a mid, uh, foot sprain, I believe it is, whatever it is now. He's probably going to knock him out for this game before the bye week. But, you know, it's year three, and the guy ran a 4-4 one, I believe, at the Combine, and yet, why can't the Giants, both, they've now had two coaching staffs in here with Ingram, and none of them can seem to figure out a way to get the seam, to work the seam with his speed, vertical up the seam. Why is, why are we not seeing any kind of vertical routes with Ingram? Is there, is that a coaching thing, or what do you, what do you accredit that to? It has to be something to do with the injury because we've seen Ingram be used horizontally and up the seam before in the past. It's not like Pat Shermer just kind of totally forgot that that was an option. And it would be that's, – that's the reason Jerry Reese drafted this kid was to split cover two seams from the in-line position and utilize his skill set that way because the Giants during those years when they made the playoffs back in 2016, they were – Year, Nick. Year, yeah, but yes. year, exactly. They were utilizing a lot. Defense were utilizing a lot of too high looks, a lot of middle of the field open looks, and having that field stretching tight end to kind of defeat that was a necessity. And that's why they use this first round pick on Evan Ingram. But I'm not. I have to accredit it to the injury. Maybe his yeah. knee just isn't right now. He hurt his foot, and it really begs the question: Are the Giants going to pick up his fifth year option? Like I love Evan Ingram. He's a, he's a he's an athletic freak. He is, but. He's injured so much, and the Giants don't utilize him up to his fullest potential. Maybe that's because of the injury, but it's definitely not looking positive for his long-term future with this team. It's unfortunate to say, man. It's tough to say. For me, Nick, I actually don't feel like I've seen enough of that in the past, even when he was at his healthiest from Shermer or McAdoo, with them stretching the seam with him and using plays to get his vertical speed, smash routes from 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 the slot, moving in the slot for vertical smashes, anything like that. I haven't really seen it. To where I want it. I think that, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this entire offense should have been designed in the preseason around Barkley and Ingram on every single play and every single game. Force defense to take that away, and then it will open things up. And then if they want to start to take away the things that are opened up, then you go back to them. But it doesn't seem like that's the offense to me, and that's a big part of it to me. I don't see them really utilizing his speed up the seam, and I never really feel like I have. But again, this year could be the injuries. It's tough to say because I remember Shermer made a big thing in the preseason about how big of a role Ingram was going to have in this offense. And just, you know, it feels like, like you said, he was just doing a lot of curls in this game and quick hitting stuff that, that, you know, didn't fully 
put his skill set to usage. But that's something yeah, we'll have. To- I would like to just think that the Giants are are employing him this way because of the injury. It's not like they're just yeah. forget the fact that he's this phenomenal athletic freak. I mean that escapes my mind. I mean, Pat Shermer knows football. Okay. He might not be coaching this team to the best of, he's coaching this team, the best of his ability. He might not be doing the best job at doing it, but the fact that he would neglect to realize that Evan Ingram's a field stretcher who can stretch the seam and really take advantage of defenses. I mean, he obviously knows that. So there has to be things that we just don't know. Yep. That's fair. I wanted to bring up uh, one more thing. Um, I wanted to touch sure. on Daniel, Daniel Jones. Like what were your thoughts on the, uh, halftime right before halftime interception? Like, yeah, I really I mean, we probably should. This is such a loaded podcast. I feel like there's just so much to talk about. We haven't even talked Daniel Jones, which is crazy. We should probably talk about our entire feelings on Jones. Um, as far as the in- interception at halftime went, it's it's tough spot, I think, because I think he wants to be aggressive there. And I think, you know, he's given the green light by his coach to be aggressive there. But I don't think it was, A, an excellent throw from a ball placement standpoint, obviously. But just B, I don't know if that's a shot that you that you should be taking there. I didn't think like watching it on all twenty two made me feel any better about that specific play. Where do you stand on it? Third and ten, not a lot of time left on the clock. Yeah. They were in shotgun, eleven personnel. Slayton was the only receiving option to the field, which is kind of a dead giveaway. It seems like with the Giants now that they're going to be attacking that if they get the one on one coverage. And the Giants right. were hoping that Xavier Woods, who was playing free safety, deep safety in the cover one who ended up getting that interception, was going to look towards the boundary because that's where all the receiving options were. And watching the All-22, DJ attempted to look Woods off, but it did he not did. fool him at all. And yep. it was a bad decision, and it was it was a bad pass. I mean, we've applauded Jones for his placement, but this ball just wasn't placed right. on the outside shoulder. He didn't throw him open. He threw him to the—I mean, the, the throw was from the far hash, so it is a difficult throw. But this is a throw that you just can't make. I mean, it was at like the numbers. It wasn't even close yep. to the sideline. So it was just an interception waiting to happen. It sucks that Slayton and bail him out earlier in that drive because the first down that he ended up dropping was on that specific drive. But, I mean, you just don't want to see uh, the quarterback continue to do that. But you do kind of like the aggressiveness, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. I'm always going to say it's about Jones. He's going to have his turnovers for sure. But he's he, and I, but that's the, his style of play. He's an aggressive quarterback. And the things that I've seen so far – you know, for the most part, with the exception of this game, which I thought was probably his worst game. And again, a lot of it to me was just the fact that the defenses were that the way the Cowboys played him on defense. I thought they had an excellent game plan to stop the Giants. The Giants aren't going to have success running the ball, in my opinion, against this front. So I did again. Me, me, and you thought a little different on this, but I felt like the Giants, the Cowboys, were daring them to run and really making it difficult for Jones to pass. He really didn't have that many of those those one-on-ones that, you know, like you said, even to the field side, the, what, like you said, the dead giveaway, the Giants, the play the Giants have been trying a lot. Um, you haven't seen too, you didn't see too many of those in this game. What did you make of Jones' performance overall? He is a very, and I've said this, he's a very gritty kind of quarterback in this league. He's going to get hit. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to come back. But he missed some throws in this. He had that bad sure. throw, that poor throw. The t- right before the touchdown, the Latimer, he missed the touchdown to, I want to say it was Benny Fowler. That was at the second and three. It was uh, 13 minutes left in the second quarter. It was right after Tate's one-handed snag, actually. And uh, they came out 11 personnel. They had Ingram and Tate to the boundary. Ingram was the H-back. And on the snap, DJ eyes Tate on the curl while Tate was tight to that formation. Evan Ingram headed towards the boundary. But to the field side, Jalen Smith blitzed. And Fowler ran the same route as Tate. It was a short turnaround curl uh, at the end zone. 
DJ needs to not be so glued to his first read in this scenario. He yeah. was glued to his first read, which was Tate. But that strong side blitz happens. And if he knows that strong side blitz happens and sees that strong side blitz going on, he's going to know Fowler has inside leverage with a lot of space because of the pre-snap coverage that was over top of Fowler since that linebacker just vacated that area. And he didn't really recognize that. I feel like he can't really miss that. And the end result was just a short scramble. And DJ picked up like six yards. I mean, thankfully, the Giants ended up getting that touchdown to Latimer shortly after. But little things like that. If he realized that was a blitz, he should have known. There's a lot of leverage there for Fowler inside leverage. And it would have been an easy touchdown to Benny. Yeah, and I think that kind of harps back on some of the main concerns a lot of analysts had with him during the pre-draft process. And that's one that he... Likes to lock onto that first read, and when you know solution A isn't there, it's hard for him to come. Up. Sometimes it's hard for him to, or sometimes he's too slow to come off of it. And some of the processing, you know, it's still a little bit slow. A lot of that again is he's a rookie. But there was a play that really stood out to me in the red zone. I don't remember, you know if you remember this. Nick was on their last uh, possession where they stalled in the red zone and kicked the field goal. There was a wheel route they ran with Gallman right after Barkley took the screen, like sixty-five yards to the eight. Um, and instead, Jones kind of locked onto the quick curl and tried to throw the ball over to Ingram, who was incomplete. But if he if he immediately processes that the the defensive back who's responsible for Gallman and does kind of you know trail with Gallman, but is trailing at about the one or two yard line, if he immediately recognizes that and throws the ball a dart to Gallman there, Gallman in space is at minimum getting to the two yard line there. But in my opinion, the way I've seen Gallman in space with that much space on a defensive back is probably going to get in the end zone, in my opinion. There, um, so that's just like you know one. One play that stood out to me, and it's just kind of like an overall scope of his just processing being a little slow still for me. And even the play before that you mentioned, I think was a really good one because I think that was one thing Eli did a good job of when he recognized that blitz and recognized, you know, like you said, the inside leverage the receiver had. He would make that hot throw there to Fowler for the touch on. He would see that a lot of times down there. Um, so just something interesting to keep, as we say, like, you know, he's a rookie. He's going to have these kind of pains. You saw last year with how much that rookie class struggled, um, with the exception of Mayfield, who really didn't even put up as good stats as they're kind of like were advertised. And then you see a lot of those guys struggling this year as well. Um, it's going to happen. This is how it is in the NFL. It's a tough game. And it's not like he was, it's not like Duke where he was really getting the ball out fast to that first read in the quick game, which the Giants have tried to mimic. Pat Trimmer's trying to mimic, in my opinion, to a fault, Nick. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like he's almost tried to mimic this a bit to a fault. Maybe that's because he doesn't feel as confident yet in Jones. But again, there's going to be times, like you said, where he needs to come off of that first read and make something happen uh, elsewhere in the play. So anything else on the offense you want to touch on before we flip it? No, not really. Just, I mean, we've seen Daniel come off of those reads. So it's definitely something that's in yeah. his arsenal. It's definitely something that doesn't sure. totally confuse him. And I know you know that. I'm just reiterating. So it's just something that we hope we see on a more consistent basis because on that specific play, high leverage on the goal line, eyes down Tate, then just scrambles. He needs that's to right. kind of go through, realize what's going on. Just didn't on that play. Yep. No doubt. It's not like we're not seeing it at all. It's just like Nick said, that is important to make clear. It's more of a see it on a more consistent basis and continue to have that, that, that can only go up. That's a big scale there, like on how fast he can process. And that is really what makes the difference in a lot of these excellent quarterbacks, the NFL level, his ability to process and how he processes the game, both before and after the snap is going to make the difference because he has the arm talent to make all these throws. And he has really good ball placement on a lot of his throws as well on a more consistent basis than a lot of these young quarterbacks I'm watching. The ball placement is there. So if he just, couples that excellent ball placement and his athlete with his athleticism and then just speeds up the processing the sky's the limit it just kind of depends on how fast he's going to be able to speed that up and kind of get out of some of those habits he's developed uh from his time at duke at least in my yeah. mind 
No, nah, there's no doubt about it. And one more thing before we go to the defense. I am a big fan of Kevin Zeitler. He's the best offensive lineman on this team, but he had a very poor game. And this was the worst game in a Giants uniform. And it was really evident, actually, on the last Giants drive. I don't know if you saw it on film, but Malik Collins had two consecutive reps yep. where he, he just absolutely made Zeitler look like he had no idea what he was doing. One was with this nasty inside spin move with the back forearm that forced Zeitler to just overset and it flushed DJ out of the pocket. And the next was actually a sack by Malik Collins. And Malik Collins, I mean, good player in his own right, but he's, he's not, you know, Grady Jarrett or Aaron Donald, or any of those kind of interior defensive linemen, but he really looked good on this play. I mean, he, I think Zeitler on the next play, the sack play, he expected Remmers to help or something like that, but it did not come because Colin, because he set inside and looked like he was expecting help, and Collins just obliged on the set and just attacked his outside shoulder and ripped right through and just ended up sacking DJ. So, I mean, I don't like, you know, pointing at, professional athletes be like haha you did this wrong or anything ridiculous like that but we applaud him when he does well so we should call him out if he has these kind of mistakes and Malik Collins got the better of him on a couple different occasions in this game and this was Zeitler's worst game in a Giants uniform yeah there's no doubt about that Nick he was the lowest graded Giants offensive lineman according to pro football focus their lowest graded pass blocker as well so it wasn't just us who saw this um you know the guys who do it over at PFF saw it too and it's gonna happen he's gonna have bad games especially in a matchup like this one it wasn't necessarily easy ever see an untucked button down they look bad why do you think that is because they weren't meant to be worn that way thankfully there's untuck it the original button down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked no matter your size or shape untuck it shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length and with the holidays near there's no better gift for your favorite guy who needs an upgrade or just yourself i always try to find shirts that will fit me untucked and they always end up looking just poor and that's why i love untuck it because there's no brand better if you want an untucked shirt they have more than 50 fit combinations and they look good on tall short slim athletic guys of all different ages and i have personal experience with this brand you can find your favorite untucked styles online or you can check out one of their 80 brick and mortar stores choose from styles like wrinkle free button downs super soft flannels outerwear and more and with untuck it your shirts will never look baggy bulgy too long or too big ever again and their website is so easy to use such a great interface they even have a whole page devoted to helping you find your specific fit so whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to craft a smart relaxed style of your own untuck it is the way to go so please visit untuckit.com and use the code blue for 20% off at checkout. That's untuckit.com and promo code blue for 20% off. You will not regret it. Support for Blue Wire comes from Manscaped, who is number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Hey, fellas, we've all been there. Whether it's you're about to go on a date or you're about to go to the beach and you want to trim your hedges down below there, what happens? You grab a razor or some sort of grooming product, you go down and what? Ow, ooh, <clears throat> you nick your sack, and it's the worst feeling in the world. 
but fellas, men, guys, this is why we have Manscaped. Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their Lawn Mower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts, which is amazing. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past, and don't use that same trimmer on your face as you use on your balls. What are you, some kind of nasty thing? That's absolutely disgusting. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits, why are you not putting it on deodorant on the smelliest part of your body, which happens to be a sack down below there? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BLUEWIRE at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job, for your family jewels, your balls will thank you, I can guarantee that. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BLUEWIRE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code BLUEWIRE. Your balls will thank you. But let's flip it to the defensive side of the ball. And the first thing I want to talk about there, Nick, is in a game like this where, you know, even though the Cowboys did dominate from a yardage standpoint, they gave the Giants so many chances, like I said at the beginning of the pod, with that turnover in their own red zone. And then when they turned the ball over inside the Giants 20 when they were driving and the and Peppers forced the fumble. A lot of stupid plays that give the Giants shots. Um, but then you look at a game that has that kind of flow and feeling to it. And then the two of the biggest game-changing plays in this game, the Jarwin touchdown and the Mark, uh, Jarwin touchdown uh, right before the halftime where the Giants could have held them to three easily there if they don't give that up. And then the Cooper touchdown on third and 13 at the end of the game where if the Giants get the ball back, they have a chance to win. To me, it looked like those were just miscommunications there. Um, now that we're this far into the season and these problems seem to be happening a lot, similar to last season, are you losing any faith in James Betcher or does it kind of just go back to the personnel for you? I mean, I think it is more of a personnel issue, and I think James Betcher has a more complicated scheme. We heard just today that DeAndre Baker came out and he said he doesn't fully grasp the system. And that is very evident on the film because him and some of these other younger pieces have been making mistakes, especially with this pattern match coverage, especially with things like banjo coverage, things that we covered on this podcast. So I think it's a personnel issue. I think they're just not experienced enough. And they don't have the football IQ to maybe fully understand what James Betcher is teaching them. The fact that, you know, it's not the 1980s or 1990s where there was training camp, you know, what, two or three days or whatever the hell they did back then. There's a lot less practice time these days. So there's a longer learning curve for these younger players. And there's a lot of football to learn in those short practices through training camp and into the season. And guys like DeAndre Baker are learning on the fly. Being a rookie corner in this league is incredibly difficult. So I do believe it's a combination of the personnel and the fact that it is a difficult system. But I'm I'm not necessarily losing faith in Betcher when it comes to some of these big plays. You want to see them get corrected, and you hope they do. But again, like we already talked about a few times on this podcast, this defense does not have a lot of money invested in it. Now, if this had a lot of talent on it, it would be a different story. But we've seen Betcher be successful in Arizona, and I'm not fully out on him just yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Nick. I feel like the biggest issue for this defense is certainly – the personnel and, and like and there are times where I'm like, what is he doing when I see these linebackers 
shooting, just uh, completely vacating the middle of the field on these run plays and some of the blown coverages. And he is asking a lot of a really young secondary here with Baker. And, you know, now people see why they don't, why they took so long to get somebody like Ballantyne in who started over Haley in this game, which we haven't even talked about yet. And, you know, love people want to talk about getting Julian love in a guy we were really excited about in the draft, a guy who you had a really high grade on. I had a really high grade on Nick Turch and I, we all really liked him. But you're asking these guys to learn a defensive system that's pretty complicated. It uses, like you said, pattern match coverages, which not all defenses use. Steve Spagnuolo certainly didn't use much of it. Perry Fuel certainly didn't use much of it. And I don't know if anybody heard it, by the way, but Perry Fuel got destroyed the other day by Dante Whitner on Washington Radio, who basically, you know, called him one of the worst coaches he's ever played for. And and from my memory of being a Giants, following this Giants team, Perry Fuel was the worst defensive coordinator I've ever seen. Uh, play coach this team but again so I don't have my my faith isn't lost there Nick I just there are a lot of big plays that this team gives up and it seems like the mistakes are repeating themselves and I think that's just kind of like you said a product of the personnel so yeah Nick let's transition to that what do you make of DeAndre Baker's performance Um, because obviously it was very highly criticized when I went back and I watched him on the all 22 I thought he had some really nice pass breakups actually but you know there were some plays where he was just lost in coverage or he just kind of slipped on a on one play that led to a big play what did you make of Baker's performance in this one was it as bad as people were saying well being a rookie cornerback like I said is one of the toughest jobs in the NFL and Baker is certainly struggling but this defense has been vulnerable to the big play and Baker has been that witch's broom that kind of stirs the pot to all of these vulnerabilities and he's all over Twitter getting blasted by Giants Nation and everything like that. Everyone already labeling him a bust and there are a lot of coverage laps and him not really executing his assignments on certain plays have led to huge plays for the offense. The kid still stays in phase with the receivers. Yep. He's still very physical. You won't see him ole a tackle like his counterpart. Janoris Jenkins, he doesn't do that. He sticks you, he drills you into the ground, he drives his feet. He's a rookie who has made mistakes, so every offensive coordinator has him circled. He had a few nice plays, like in the second quarter, I want to say on the second and five, with about 9.50 left, he was glued to Gallup on the slant. He also utilized the sideline well a few times in the first quarter. But making excuses for these mistakes that he keeps making will continue to get old. So he's going to have to kind of adapt to the NFL. And I don't see Shermer sitting him down anytime soon unless it really, really persists. I mean, this is the second game in a row where we've seen some kind of blown coverage, which resulted in a touchdown. I mean, I I can't get over that egregious penalty that the referees called on him because he was in phase with Cooper, forced him to the sideline, forced him off the red line, which is the imaginary line receivers are told to maintain between the numbers and the sidelines. But Baker literally just touched Cooper's hip after hand fighting, and that old-ass geriatric ref threw his flag onto the turf. It was absolutely abysmal, and a lot of people are kind of giving him flack for that, even though they know it was an egregious call, but it does look negative on his resume. Baker still stayed in phase with a lot of these receivers. It's just he has the blown coverages, and it's mental. It's mental. It's mental. It's not as much as a physical mistake. So those are correctable. He just needs to get up to speed with the intellect of James Betcher's defense. And you've seen it, I'm sure, on this tape as well. You see him in the hip pocket riding receivers to the sideline. Good cornerback technique. But those mental coverages, man, you can't keep doing it because it's going to get really, really old really, really fast. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He's going to clean that up, though, I think. And like you said— that was a terrible pass interference call, game-changing call. They screwed that one up. Um, it's tough for Giants, but it's part of the game, and it's not why they lost this game. Um, but I, there were a couple other things I wanted to talk about as far as the defense goes. It feels like the Giants were kind of struggling to create pressure. They tried a few different things. I, I saw I saw 
you know, Betcher lined up that edge really far off the snap, really wide, kind of almost like a wide nine formation. That mm-hmm. didn't really seem to work. Um, so what happened here? Was it more just scheme based or is just this Cowboys offensive line that dominant? I mean, I think the Cowboys offensive line is yeah, much better too. than the Giants uh, defensive line but and the defensive front, I should say, because you got to include the linebackers. But this defense is just susceptible to the big play, poor linebacker discipline, poor gap responsibility. Shit, man. I, I mean, you got to tip your cap to Peppers and Bethay. You really have to because those two have to make so many tackles at the second level because the linebackers just are never in position. And I really just, I mean, we, we kind of blast Bethay a little bit on this podcast. And yes, he's not that rangy kind of free safety that you like, but he fills those gaps hard. And it's usually him in between the offensive ball carrier and the touchdown. And he has to come down and kind of force a tackle or force that running back to go towards somebody to be tackled. So I got to tip my cap to him. But man, got to also tip a cap to Kellen Moore, man. Cowboys offensive line dominated the line of scrimmage. They used halfback stretch zone to defeat the Giants base and nickel personnel because... Run fits and gap integrity is just not a strength of this Giants defense whatsoever. Cowboys would block all in one direction and have the defense flow in that same direction while Zeke would just patiently wait for the cutback lane that was always there because the defense yep. would over-pursue and didn't hold up the continuity of their overall unit. And this is why there was always a huge hole on the backside. It was always there. The defensive line got washed too far down. The linebackers would get sucked in too far, which resulted in big plays, man. It's crazy. And I'll say it again. Watching the Cowboys' backside pursuit versus the Giants is hilarious when you watch the Giants' backside pursuit. It's just not there. The Cowboys' defense backside pursuit was phenomenal watching that tape, and the Giants just did not have that. Zeke would have time to scratch his nuts and tie his shoes before hitting the hole because backside pursuit defenders were absolutely nowhere to be found, Dan. How many times have we seen Saquon get dragged down from the backside? Must be nice not to worry about that whatsoever. But, man, I mean, the Cowboys just – they put on a clinic with this. And they utilize play-action rollouts because off of these horizontal runs to have the old man Witten just be out there wide open because nobody would cover him. Look like vintage Gronk out there against the Giants every time. He just owns the Giants. It's terrible, man. And linebackers just can't cover these fakes. They can't maintain gap discipline. I mean, there was one play. I want to say it was – I think it was in the second quarter with about 250 left, something like that. It was a halfback stretch. Alec Ogletree shoots the opposite side A gap and abandons his B gap. And everyone gets washed down. Zeke just patiently stutter steps and just attacks the B gap. And you've seen that time and time again with Ogletree. Ogletree is out of position so much in this defense, and there's no damn continuity. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a somewhat of a defender of Ogletree last season. I thought he played a little bit better than people gave him credit for when I watched the All-22. In 2018, a lot of that, though, was just the impact he made on sideline-to-sideline plays, but I'm done there. That 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 Dan is long gone. Um, I think Ogletree is one of the biggest culprits, if not the biggest culprit, in this defense's struggles. And like you said, I mean, some of the stuff we've just seen, like— the play action boots that they hit, they hit Witten on for just those easy chunk gains over and over. We just see this constantly with this defense getting beat by these PA fakes, by these play action fakes, and it's just like over and over the same concept. I mean, this was a game where the first half the Cowboys didn't even do. Dak did nothing. Dak threw the ball to Randall Cobb over and over again, and then PA to Witten, and just ran the ball with Zeke for easy gains, like you said on these. He would just be patient, find that cutback, and the offensive line would destroy the Giants. And it was so simple to me in that first half and that's personnel related for sure I mean it's been I give Dak very little credit in this game I thought he made an amazing pass on the touchdown to Gallup 
um, I believe it was, that that, that put throw he threw to the sideline. I thought he missed a wide-open touchdown to Cooper uh, late in the game on the deep post, which was a terrible ball, the worst ball by either quarterback in this game. And so to me, I really think the Giants' defense made it easy on him. Um, and part of that is, like you said, the Cowboys' offensive line. But we're seeing some of the same mistakes over and over, and I just don't know. Like you said, there's some hope from a matchup standpoint that the Giants aren't going to have to face this Cowboys' offensive line every week. As a matter of fact, they probably won't face another one like this until they play the Eagles later in the year twice um, because their offensive line is cooking right now. They look awesome. Awesome. Especially with my boy Andre Dillard there, the rookie at left tackle. The guy I wanted the Giants to take at 17 for sure. And I still love me some Dexter Lawrence, but not to the extent of Dillard. If they could have a Dillard on this roster right now, stepping in next year at left tackle, just poof. I got a funny Dillard story. Yeah, go for it. Share it right now. Yeah, when I uh, so this past year, I was at the Senior Bowl. I was uh, interning for the Senior Bowl. So I was in charge of all the edge prospects for the North team. So it was my job to make sure they were at all their meetings. It was, let's say, just a ton of fun to try to keep track of all of those really personable individuals. But Andre Dillard, I was just in small talk with him. And I asked him about Mike Leach. And I was like, so, man, you uh, got to be coached by Mike Leach, man. That must have been really cool. Was he a really cool guy? And like he just kind of stopped. And he was like... I don't know if really cool is the way I would describe him. <laughs> and it was just like the way he said it, like stop. He sounded like an intellect when he said it too. And I was just like, oh, dude, <laughs> Mike Leach is such a personality, man. Anyways, just go That's on. funny. That's funny. No, I like that little blurb. I mean, Diller was a guy I liked a lot. I think I had him like top 10 for me overall prospects um, and for the Giants and just overall on my board. Him and Bush were two guys I really wanted the Giants to look at. Um, obviously, they went into a totally different route in this draft. Um, Bush wasn't even on the board for that second pick. But back to the game for a little, Nick. I do want to have I w- want to ask you about a couple question, uh, plays that stood out to me, and we're going to kind of dive into some spots in the game here because there were key moments, and both the times that were when the Giants are on defense. So we'll start with in the third quarter, 6-10. The Cowboys have the ball. They're driving on the Giants. The Giants have an opportunity here to stop them. The Giants should be in their red zone defense where things should be harder for the opposing offense. And they stop him on first and 10 and force the Cowboys into a second and 10 here. And this was very consistent in this game. The Giants got the Cowboys in second and 10s, sometimes third and longs where they gave up or third and fives were, you know, situation. But the second and 10s and the Cowboys went back to the run because it was their bread and butter. But these should be obvious rundowns. When the Giants run from second and 10, Nick, we've seen it over and over. They get one yard, they get two yards, sometimes they get zero. And that's pretty much it. When the Cowboys ran from second and 10 in this game, it worked to a ridiculous extent. So on this play in the third quarter was 6-10 from the Giants' 17-yard line, second and 10, a spot where you could easily put them in a third and long situation in the red zone and force a field goal here, which changes the game because the Cowboys ended up scoring seven. Anyway, obvious rundown. Zeke Elliott gets six yards on, to me, a play I just don't understand, so I want your explanation. The Cowboys have six blockers here on the play, including an inline tight end, and then they have Cooper, who motions back as supposed to seventh against a nine-man Giants box here, it seems like. But, of course, Jenkins is one of those players. But the Giants still have an advantage here. So what happens here is Mayo gets completely taken out of the play by the fullback here. And then Ogletree vacates the middle of the field for God knows what reason, darts to his right, and then gets eaten up at, I guess it's the second level, but really he just runs kind of to the first level, by Tyron Smith. So... Is this just execution here? Why are the Giants losing big on plays like this where they have an advantage in the box? Well, in this specific box, they had a one technique to the strength. Okay, and then their three technique was Leonard Williams to the weak side. So it was like an under an under front, even though they had another 
no, that was a five. Yeah, and then there was a five technique to the far side. So three of your guys on the line of scrimmage are towards the strength, and it was a weak side run towards Leonard Williams, who gets kind of scoop blocked. Yeah, by Connor Williams on this play out of the play and it kind of opens up the yep. B gap. Now what Alec Ogletree is doing because he's the he's a strong side linebacker on this play. He's following the pulling offensive lineman from the strong side. He's following Zach Martin. So he's following him and he just gets met right by Tyron Smith. Now right here on this play as David Mayo sees Jamiz Olawale, the lead blocker coming through that weak side B gap. He needs to attack hard. But he doesn't. He kind of waits and he hesitates and he lets Olawale locate him at the second level, which just opens up an alley. If Mayo were to kind of come down hard and fill that gap, it would have just clogged up the gap much more. And guys like Leonard Williams, who was kind of getting around that scoop block and uh, who was the safety? I kind of forget. Or And, and maybe even uh, Ogletree could have kind of uh, got off his block and kind of clogged it all up. And it would have been maybe a two or three yard gain rather than a six yard gain. But on that play, Mayo hesitated, didn't attack downhill, didn't fill his gap. And that was the end result, six yards instead of two or three. All right, Nick. So I can talk forever on the mishaps by David Mayo in run defense and Alec Ogletree. And they had some boxes where they were fit, where the Giants had favorable and they gave up huge gains on second and 10, twice on second and 10 in the second half on third quarter was six ten. Cowboys got six yards on a second 10 from the Giants, 17. In the fourth quarter, 13 and five, or sorry, sorry, 13 minutes and 45. Another second and 10. This should be an obvious rundown. Boom, Giants burned again as Ogletree and Buchanan, the two only backers there, the two only guys apparently have pass responsibilities as they shoot to the kind of flood to flood the flat zone here and it's an easy six yard gain i mean giants in both spots could have put the cowboys in third and long with a run stop there but they were in no position to do so on the second and on the first they just simply were out executed uh with mayo playing just an atrocious game in my opinion but we don't have to talk about that all day there were some differences for the giants pass defense that we want to discuss as well and the main one is Corey Ballantyne joined the start over Grant Haley. So what do you make of that? And how did you how did Ballantyne look to you on the all 22? Well, I did hear an interview after the game that kind of put Ballantyne as the defender whose fault it was on the Amari Cooper touchdown, which was kind of surprising to me because watching the all 22, it looked like it was man coverage and not just pure pattern match. But DeAndre Baker passes. Cooper off to Ballantyne, but Ballantyne was covering the number two receiver up the seam and to the safety, so there was no one to take Cooper. Cooper caught it and then just outran Bethay for the touchdown. So if that was a mistake by Ballantyne, those are just rookie mistakes that are going to happen. This is the kid's first like actual start. He ended up playing, what, 77% of the snaps or something like that. He played a good amount of snaps out there, and I felt like he's just much better athlete than Grant Haley. I mean, this is a guy who was, what, 98th percentile in the broad jump and 87 percentile on the vertical jump. So he has a lot of lower body explosiveness. And I feel like it kind of showed up on film just when he would dive to make a tackle. You could see that explosiveness. You see him explode and time that blitz really well when he blitzed and ended up hitting Dak Prescott for that three-yard gain. I think it was to either Witten or Cobb. But he was utilized well in that way. And I feel like he stayed in phase much better than Grant Haley did. There was the one play where they motioned, I think it was Randall Cobb, from the field or the boundary side to the field side and then snapped the ball during the motion and then just hit natural rub play right against Ballantyne. And Ballantyne couldn't really do anything on that play. That was a really hard play to defend. So I'm not going to really discredit him for that. I just think he looked better and was in a better position to attack the ball and play through receivers than Grant Haley ever was. I feel the same way, and I feel like he's going to grow in this defense. He's played 53 of 69 snaps 
for the Giants, so it's definitely something to keep an eye on. I want you to talk a little bit about Lorenzo Carter, who to you flashed a little bit more in all 22, and he's get and deserves a little more credit than I've seen him get, I would say. I feel like Lorenzo Carter is developing, and there was the uh, pass interference play. Carter on that specific play beat Tyron Smith pretty bad on the play, man, and there was a couple reps, I want to say two or three, where he dipped his inside shoulder so low and reduced that surface area of his chest and exploded through the top of the arc, turning his hips and bending through contact, all traits that you really look for in a pass rusher, and I mean, it's kind of impressive to me just to see him develop and actually utilize those, because it was a question, Marshall. He can physically do these things, but will he employ them in game was the big concern with Lorenzo Carter. And he just did it against Tyron Smith on one or two reps. Yeah, I think he also had two or three hurries in this game. I mean, it felt like it was more, man. Carter was close to getting a few sacks in this game. He forced a couple different incompletions. So, I mean, I just kind of like the way he's developing and the fact that he beat one of the best tackles on two reps in this game. Didn't result in a sack, but... You could just tell he got his hips turned, won the edge, and exploded through. And if Dak was a split second late, it would have been a sack or a hit, fumble, something along those lines. Yeah, agreed. And let's talk a little bit about, I know you touched a little bit on Peppers and Bethay, who were the two highest graded uh, Giants defenders in this game. And Peppers, I've said the huge, potentially, you know, for some teams, it could be a game-changing force fumble. It wasn't for the Giants. But a really nice play there. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about the defensive line. This game was interesting because B.J. Hill was the odd man out in this. And a guy who the Giants were really high on after last season and had arguably the best year of any of those players on the defensive line last year. He only had 17 snaps in this game. Leonard Williams had 45 snaps of 69 in his first game, which was interesting. Dalvin had 35. And then Lawrence led the group with 48 uh, what did you make of the decision to kind of let let uh, keep Hill out? And then I want to give some kudos to Leonard Williams. I want to see what your thoughts were because I thought he had a really nice early pressure in the first half, led to a third down stop. He ended the game with five total pressures, which was two more than any other Giants defender on a per snap basis. Besides O'Shane Ximenez, or, or, I'm sorry, two more than than the next guy, which was Ximenez with who had three pressures but only did only had 17 total defensive snaps similar to Hill and only had seven snaps rushing the passer and had three pressures, two hurries and a hit on that. So that was impressive about Ziminen. So it's kind of a two-part question. What did you make of Williams in this game and the defensive line? And then is 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 the X-Men someone who kind of maybe have earned more snaps in this game, uh, you know, after his performance in this game, I should say? Well, in order to have the X-Man kind of get more snaps, that means Lorenzo Carter or Marcus Golden have to come off the field. And right now, I'm not sure if that's the most ideal thing, especially with teams running on the Giants, because I do feel yeah. like Lorenzo Carter and Golden are much better at the point of attack than OX is. I mean, the X-Man gets kind of turned around. He's not there yet when it comes to defending the run. But in pass rushing situations, I mean, we've seen him lined up at 2i tech. We've seen him lined up inside in some of those, what, those NASCAR type of uh Formations that Spagnuolo used to have with the Giants where you just line up a bunch of pass rushers on the defensive line. But yeah, I, I hope he gets more snaps because I do feel like he has been playing well when he gets the chance against the pass in that phase of the game. As for Hill kind of being the odd man out, I mean, I saw him on, out there in a couple second and ten. It was him and Dalvin Tomlinson. I thought Tomlinson had another really good game. He's, he continues to impress me, to be honest, this season. I feel like he's developing like an athletic way to beat to beat some of these offensive linemen with more finesse than rather than just bull rushing, which people kind of just assume that is the only way he wins. Nah, he actually has pretty good hand use. I want to say I put a clip up on Twitter when the All-22 first dropped about him winning the edge and just creating interior pressure and flushing back Prescott at. So Tomlinson played well. When it comes to B.J. Hill, I don't see anything negative with B.J. Hill, but I don't see him jumping off the tape either. 
And if there's going to be an odd man out right now, out of yep. those big guys, it's B.J. Hill because Tomlinson keeps flashing. Dexter Lawrence keeps doing what Dexter Lawrence does, and he commands a lot of double teams. And I thought Leonard Williams played really well against the pass. I put one clip up on Twitter of him defeating Tyron Smith. He won the breastplate. He pushed, and then he pulled violently on the inside shoulder, pulled him almost down to the ground, brought his arm over top, and went right through his outside shoulder to get a pressure on Dak Prescott and force an incompletion. So Leonard Williams had a really good game against the pass. There was a couple times against the run where I saw him get washed down and blocked yeah. down to the ground, and I was like, ah, Leonard Williams got to be stronger at the point of the tack, but he wasn't. And I do love the fact that he was lining up at one tech. He was lining up at three tech. He was lining up at five tech. He was lining up at six tech. They were kind of playing him all over the place. I think that's one big reason why they wanted to get him is because he is interchangeable. They could use base personnel much more, which they did against the Cowboys. Granted, the Cowboys is a team that you want to use base personnel against because they have bigger bodies. But I'm excited to see how they employ these guys as time continues to move on. But Olsen Pierre also got nine snaps as well. So we'll see if that continues because, I mean, I like Hill a lot better than Olsen Pierre. And I think a lot yeah. of people do. <laughs> but uh, it is what it is, man. Uh, I'm, I like the fact that Lawrence and Williams are getting a lot of snaps and Tomlinson's snaps haven't really been hindered as well. I just want to see more from Hill when he gets the opportunity. On that note, Nick, is there anyone else you want to touch on the Divans? We could obviously talk about Jenkins, who I feel like at this point in his career, the Giants is still really competing hard in coverage, but just totally doesn't want to tackle anyone in the run game. That's kind of how I feel when I watch him play. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to touch on that or anyone else really in the defense. The, the ball's yours. The court yeah. is yours, I'd say. The ball's in your court. Nah, yeah, but the Jackrabbit Olay, you know, I mean, he was basically, man, he might have just had a red cape on that play to Blake Jarwin. That and Ogletree on that play, I mean, he just doesn't pick up Blake Jarwin right in, right in front of his face. I thought when I watched the game, maybe he came off of Jarwin and started chasing Prescott because Prescott was coming out of the pocket, looked like he was going to run, but that wasn't the case. He just let Jarwin pass underneath, thought Jackrabbit would be over there in that pattern match thing that they run. And it wasn't, he wasn't because Jackrabbit was up on the vertical and then he Olayed later on in that play. So that was just a really shitty look for the New York Giants, but again, Ogletree, I just I don't see it with him. And Jack Rabbit, I think he's very competitive in coverage, as you alluded to. But I mean, we've seen this since he's been a giant. I mean, if somebody's running at him with momentum, he's gonna do what he can to not stick him, and that's just the way this guy plays. And I'm pretty sure everyone in the league realizes it. Um, on that note, Nick, let's dive into some questions from the listeners. So we'll start with Giovanni, who asks, while I agree with most of your views about Shermer, I feel like we're all disregarding how hard he has the team playing every week. Sometimes that kind of coaching and motivation is a bit a bit more important than the X's and O's for a young rebuilding team. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Giovanni and I have been talking about this on Twitter, and I respect what he's saying. I don't know if it would be a bit more important than X's and O's. I mean, there are there's a whole coaching staff. I mean, positional coaches, the way I look at these NFL teams, I mean, Pat Shermer, head coaches, that's the guy who's in charge. But you have these positional coaches who mean more to these players than us fans kind of uh, talk about. Those positional coaches are huge. When positional coaches go to other teams and things like that, which happen all the time, we never talk about it as fan bases. But those are huge changes. So those guys can also motivate as well. And they're more of the... Uh, big brother role than I guess Pat Shermer, who would be more the quote unquote father or grandfather role. But I appreciate what Joe Ovani's trying to say here, because I do believe that it is important with young rebuilding teams, but it's not all on Shermer. I do believe it's on the entire coaching staff when it comes to motivation and X's and O's. If you're the play caller, you better have that crossed off. And Shermer hasn't done the best job with that. I think we can agree on. As I say, Giovanni, I think part of this is that I think that I just, my issues are not just the play calling with Shermer. I think that um, 
as far as the X and O's goes, I just don't think the game. There's no game specific plans. It doesn't feel like to 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 match up against specific defenses. When defenses show them things, I don't see the adjustments I want to see. So there's a lot that goes into it. I would say. But, I mean, I do think there is definitely some value to what you're saying. The team is playing hard for Shermer, although they are making a lot of stupid mistakes, and they are playing sloppy ball, in my opinion. So it's kind of hard to gauge, you know, what is of more importance. You kind of have to see as it goes. But the fact of the matter is this is a 2-7 and seven team, and they were uncompetitive. They're, they're out of the playoffs already, and they were out of the playoffs already at this point last year. That's not a good sign, uh, especially after Shermer gets his guy at QB, which was the excuse for last year. Uh, but now he has someone who can fit his system. Uh, so it's kind of like what is the common denominator now, or what are we looking at now? And that's kind of what you have to ask yourself. On the flip side, Mike Jerky asks, when will – Pat Shermer get the pink slip. If there are any doubts now, why would they wait? I believe Pat Shermer will get the pink slip if this team plays like they're playing next year. I don't think he's getting the pink slip this year. I think he's going to kind of go about it the way that it was a reset button when Eli Manning was benched. Look, we had the team in 2018 with Eli Manning. It didn't work out, and we decided to bench him. And now look, I'm Pat Shermer. I have a rookie quarterback. You have to give me more time to develop the rookie quarterback, and he's going to go at it at that angle to the Maras, and I believe he'll buy him another year. But if the team continues to struggle next year, that's when I think the seat will get scorching high. But at the same time, man, if Shermer goes into this game this week, and I hate saying that like things are predicated on one game, but if he goes in there and it's a total flop and the Jets make the Giants look like total ass in MetLife Stadium— John Mara, the Tishes, they are very, very proud individuals, and that that could change things, to be honest, if that specific thing happens. But I do believe Shermer will be here next year. Yeah, and that could definitely change things. Because one important thing uh, I will say is that before the year, you know, John Mara made a statement. He's basically said, I want to leave this year feeling good and like we're headed in the right direction. And so, you know, they can kind of say that's how they left last year, which is bogus because they had that whatever run over the last eight games, that meaningless run where they won some games, but really didn't even win that many. Uh, and one of them was against Chase Daniel, a backup quarterback. But he needs to feel good about this team. And and like I said, I don't see Shermer getting the pink slip until uh, after next season at the earliest. I don't think the Giants are going to ever make another in-season coaching firing. I think that one was kind of out of their control and predicated on an unexpected decision to bench Eli Manning and an unexpected backlash from that decision. But again, he's not going to get longer than next year, guys. I mean, that's it. It's going to be it. He's They're going to have to start winning games next year. You can't be this. The Giants have the worst record in the NFL besides the Browns since 2017. I mean, something has to give here. Jason Torrance asks, guys, is there any scenario you see Shermer losing his job this year. I know it's more likely he's forced to give up play calling, but can they really sell to the fans that he's the solution? I know the roster is still a draft class or two away, but come on. Uh, first off, I want to touch on how you said Chase Daniel was a backup quarterback. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going up in Chicago. <laughs> is he a backup quarterback? No, <laughs> but Jason Torrance, uh, we just kind of touched on this when it comes to I don't believe Shermer will lose his job, and I definitely don't believe he's going to lose his job midseason. That's not something that I feel like will happen, so... I don't see that materializing. Yeah, again, like I said, the only way I could see him losing his job is if he has a similar type McAdoo situation where he does something so egregious that the fan base truly revolts on them. But they're really not liking what's going on. They didn't like watching that Monday night football game where the Cowboys fans took over the stadium and were there in that fourth quarter rocking. They're not going to like MetLife this Sunday if the Jets, if a team like the Jets, a really, really bad roster, 
worse than the Giants roster. Shermer has no excuse. He has to win this game. I don't care if Ingram's out and he's going to be out. Shepard's out and he's going to be out. That sucks for Jones. It sucks for Shermer. It sucks for the offense. It doesn't matter. The Jets are a, a an atrocious roster. This is a team that has had their best players on the trade block and they don't feel confident about the management or their coaching staff. They have a coach who may, who's worse than Shermer. This, it's an, it's an, they can't lose this game in my mind. If they lose this game, I think that's it for you having any faith and us having any faith in Shermer. But again, I don't know if it'll make, if it'll force the Giants' hand. Uh, Client nine asks Nick, Dan and Nick, is it too early to start talking draft and what position the Giants should prioritize given the holes on this roster? Also, when does Shermer start to feel the heat for compiling the same record with an improved roster? A lot of Shermer questions this week. It's a hot, it's a hot topic. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of touched on all the Shermer points, but I don't think it's ever too early to start talking draft. I love talking draft, and Dan and I have talked about some of the positions that I feel like the Giants need to target, need to focus on the offensive line. You need to look at the linebacker position. I think adding an edge rusher would be smart as well. I think adding safeties would be excellent, as well as cornerbacks. You could add a de- another receiver as well. I don't think you should go after Judy or Ruggs or any of those guys or CeeDee Lamb in the first round because I feel like you could have better value at other positions. And also, drafting the best player player available is something that could the Giants could explore obviously not the quarterback or running back position but at other positions yeah I think someone should look for put me on life alert on draft day just in case the Giants do burn a top 10 pick on a wide receiver or any skill position for that matter but as far as the draft goes we're gonna have a lot more on that for you guys uh as we get rolling um but right now I'm not very well versed and I have read a lot of draft content from not there yet there's a long way to go there um can't Came in Dante, um, and I don't know if that's how, how you pronounce your name, man, but I'm kind of just pronouncing it like Don Dante, which is uh, a song from one of my favorite bands, My Morning Jacket. I find a way to drop their name in a lot of these pods. I've been listening to a lot of My Morning Jacket. Wait, lately, you listen so... to a band called My Morning Jacket? Yes, and if I, there I... are any Jacket fans on here, please reach out to me and let's talk. Yeah, please reach out to him and talk, because I, I'm intrigued <laughs> by this social, this social experiment we might be conducting. <laughs> I mean, Nick, Nick, I guess, has never heard of My Morning Jacket. The, the, to be fair, they were they were more popular in 2006 through 2008. Um, but if you like if you like jam band music slash uh, it's kind of somebody once described to me as the Allman Brothers meets Bob Marley. Um, and we'll leave it at that because this is not a music podcast, but that's kind of where I'm at with that. But anyway, come Dante came in. Dante asks, my question is, this is inside linebacker free safety or Offensive tackle, the more pre- most pressing need for the Giants. Also, what free agents will be available this season? Do you think the Giants should be also be considering? I mean, you can look at all three of those position groups and say you can. You really need all three of them. I think you have replacement players, players that can start, but you want to upgrade from in Solder at your left tackle. Remmers, you do want to upgrade from, but he is holding his own. It's not excellent, but it's not great. I think linebacker is a very huge liability and a rangy free safety and a cover one system is something that the Giants need to locate. Because they play a lot of middle of the field close, you need a rangy safety. Like we said before, guys like Malik Hooker, they don't grow on trees. I think the Giants must get one of those two positions, but you can find rangy free safeties in the third, fourth round. Guys like Tedrick Thompson, players like that that have been drafted. Marquise Blair out of Utah this year. You can find players like that. And as for free agents this offseason, I haven't studied who is going to be a free agent this offseason yet, if I'm going to be completely honest, because a lot of times some of these guys, they get locked up by their teams, especially the younger ones, the ones who are of big value the people are going to be available are going to be the really really expensive one dan do you have anybody in mind yeah i mean i was going to just say the same thing we can't i don't think free agency is a smart thing to look into until it gets closer because a lot of these guys end up getting franchise tagged or re-signed um but i will say this 
I, after watching this game, and maybe it's recency bias, but I felt this way after the Vikings game too, I think inside linebacker is their biggest need. I think they could get away with one more year of Solder more than they can get away with one more year of David Mayo and Alec Ogletree. I think they can get away with one more year of Bethay more than they can get away with Ogletree and Mayo. And I think in general with these three positions, it sucks for the Giants that these are their three biggest needs because – these are the three biggest, the three hardest needs to fill in both free agency and the draft. Take one look at the free agent linebacker market, even as it stands. And as I'm looking at it, the most intriguing inside backer name to me is freaking Sean Lee, who's 34 years old and played and just played an awesome game against the Giants. But I mean, he's who knows if he's going to retire, who knows if his body can hold up in a starting role. But you look down this list and there is not much. I like Shaq Thompson a lot if the Panthers let him go. He's kind of more of an of, of he played more of a different role in Betcher's defense than where I think what they totally need there. But it's slim pickings there. And you want to talk about deep half safeties to replace Bethay. Good luck, man. I mean, I know Earl Thomas was just a was just a free agent and the Baltimore Ravens had to pay him a ton of money at an old age coming off an injury just to show you how hard it is to find safeties. I mean, if Rodney Mc, Rodney McLeod hits free agency from the Eagles, he's been injured a little bit lately in his career, but I have liked him as a deep half safety earlier in his career. Awesome. I know the Giants were in on Devin McCourty. The Patriots safety was now going to be 30. He was now 33, going to be 34. They almost signed him when he was last a free agent. The Patriots just snagged him away. Too bad that didn't happen with Solder um, and vice versa. And the Giants could have got McCourty because he's a hell of a player. If somehow they can get him, sure, I'd pay the money there. As you guys know, I'm not as obsessed with the cap and only spending on young guys as some people are uh, online. But, you know, these are some of the names, and as I said, like they're older guys. They've had either injury histories or you know they're ending, they're reaching a different part of their career where you might not want to pay them. But that's kind of the position we're at in the NFL now. And then you look at offensive tackle. Don't expect any. <laughs> I I mean I don't think you guys should be expecting any free agent hits there. The Giants could go after uh, Daryl Williams again from the Panthers, who I thought they would sign last offseason coming off the injury. But I don't know about that. Brian Bulag is a free agent, but he's more of a right tackle. So then you'd have to, you know, you could put him there and you could get rid of Remmers. That's something. I mean, Anthony Costanzo might be a free agent from the from the Colts. He's an excellent left tackle. He's 32. Andrew Whitworth, 38. And I don't think either. I don't think that Costanzo is going to going to go anywhere there. So, I mean, I think we do really have to wait here to see what happens uh, in free agency and some of these guys are retained. But I don't know if there's going to be that many answers there. I think they're going to have to build this over time there. And we'll, we'll get you guys more for sure as it gets closer. But that's kind of where we are at now with free agency. So ju- just the Giants fan podcast asked, in what ways have you seen the team? Have you seen a team schematically try to compensate for deficient insider linebacker corps like the Giants have? And as a follow-up, are the Giants doing this right now? And if not, do you think there's too many? Other, is it's because there's too many other holes to account for? I do think it's because there's so many holes to account for. I mean, you got to remember, just a Giants fan podcast. You got to remember, man. Like you have, you're gonna be three young players starting in a complicated defense just in the secondary. And that's not going to be a good look. I don't think they can really overcompensate for the deficiency in the inside linebacker core. And I'm sure the coaches realize that Ogletree is a deficiency, but he was brought in by Gettleman. It was one of the first moves Gettleman made when he took the job. So I don't know if you'll, I don't know if Ogletree will be on the team next year. We're going to be blatantly honest, but I haven't really seen too much of them overcompensating for this kind of deficient linebackers. What about you there, Dan? 
Yeah, I think that there's not much you can do with where they're at from a personnel standpoint. It sucks to say. Part of it is the injuries. They lost Connolly. They misjudged Tay Davis, what he could be for this team maybe, or Mm -hmm. maybe early in their process. I don't know why he was in that role. Same thing with Goodson there, and then they traded him just before the season. It's just like they kind of mismanaged this inside linebacker group, and and this is kind of where they're at with it, the way I see it. Um, Don Douglas asks, who are your top candidates to replace Pat Shermer? Could you see a situation where Shermer stays and a new offensive coordinator comes in? I could definitely see a situation where the ownership comes down and says, hey, look, Pat, you need to give up play calling, focus on being a head coach. And in that sense, I will they will bring in an offensive coordinator. And I'm trying to connect pieces of, A, what is Mike Shula doing? B, <laughs> who is connected to Pat Shermer in his coaching past that may come over? Because like we talked about, Stefanski isn't going to come over. That's not going to be allowed. The Vikings, he's already the OC there, and he's probably going to get a head coaching gig in the offseason. So I see that Jay Gruden is in the notes, and that's somebody that is interesting. I don't know. Jay Gruden was with Cincinnati before he went to, before he took the head coaching job in Washington. I wouldn't be too adverse to that because if I remember correctly, him in Cincinnati with Andy Dalton and uh, Hugh Jackson, who I want to believe, who I believe was came after him coming over from Oakland. I want to say that that offense was pretty productive. They never really won anything, but they put up points and they were a sufficient offense. Don Douglas says, my dream scenario is Jay Gruden as the offensive coordinator. Don, we are on the exact same page. I think Jay Gruden should be hired as the Giants offensive coordinator. I think he should have taken over play calling uh, for next season, work in his concepts. You look at what he did in Cincinnati with Andy Dalton. You look at what he did in Washington with Kirk Cousins. I know Cousins is back to having an okay year again, even though he missed a ton of throws last game, a ton of easy throws. And he's missed a ton of easy throws all year. And I think a lot of what his success is just schemed up by Kevin Stefanski over there, but who's done an excellent job as Vikings offense coordinator. Too bad Giants tried to sign him instead of Shula, who, again, I haven't seen any of Shula's wrinkles of what he did with McCaffrey or anything he did in Carolina in this offense. Seems like that was a true Dave Gettleman hire, I guess. I don't know what. Maybe Pat Shermer knew him and they were buddies from, like Dante Whitner said on the air, a lot of these coaches are just hiring their friends. But back to Gruden. Gruden did it with Cousins. He did it with Dalton. He did it a little bit with Alex Smith last year, who everybody thought would fall off after he left Andy Reid in that Kansas City offensive system with the awesome play calling there and the offensive awesome line, offensive line. Nope, he put up numbers with Gruden, just like his brother John, who's who's coaxing out a career year out of Derek Carr, who I think is one of the most flawed quarterbacks I've watched. Um, they know how to scheme up passing plays and they know how to move the ball through the air and Jay Gruden would be excellent for Daniel Jones's development I think he'd be better for his development than Shermer and I don't think they're going to fire Shermer I'm sorry go ahead no no I was just gonna say and if I'm not mistaken this is really interesting there was obviously because it's the Redskins there was a lot of divisiveness in their draft room this past year and it was because the coaching staff Jay Gruden wanted Daniel Jones where the owner and Bruce Allen wanted Dwayne Haskins. That's just a rumor. I have no inside information on that. But if that's true, that is a really interesting wrinkle into this storyline. Yep. I mean, that's what people think. And that's what I truly believe is true, by the way, for sure. Um, I definitely believe Gruden wanted him. So it feels like a match made in heaven, but it would require probably the Giants brass coming in and being like, hey, Shermer, you got to step down and just be a coach. Get a play calling duties. But B, you have to give up a lot. It would have to require Shermer giving up a lot of his power 
I don't know if he's that type of guy who wants to give that up because Gruden's going to have a couple of different, you know, a few different ideas for how to move the ball through the air. I mean, they don't have exactly, they, they have West Coast principles, both of their offensive systems, but they are pretty different. So we'll see how that goes. I think it's something to keep in mind. I don't know if the Giants also would want to hire Gruden because of some of the things that, you know, you saw uh, in, publicized at the end of his run there. I don't know if the Giants want to bring in a guy like that. It's Let tough the to guy say. smoke a doobie, man. <laughs> We're going to be yeah, that tight. I, I I don't know. It is John Mayer and Dave Gettleman, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put that past them. And it seems like it's a very buddy buddy thing with Mike Shula in. So we'll see. We'll see there. It would be a great scenario for me too, though. Don Douglas, Stan McCune asks. I know they aren't losing games because of officiating, but has there ever been a season where more major bad calls have been made against the Giants? Several missed turnover calls, false penalties. Just about every game has cost the Giants majorly. I mean, this could be my homerism, and I really hope it's not because I try to not be a homer, but I feel like it's a lot of seasons that that happens. So I can't say that this has been the worst season. This has been a bad season. It's been a lot of shitty calls, but I feel like it happens often with the Giants. Yeah, I'm not in that boat, guys. Uh, I respect you guys for sure and your opinion on that, and I understand why it could come about, but I think the calls are probably crappy for any i think any fan will probably feel the way that you feel oh, stan of course um <laughs> yeah so i i don't think the giants are, are maybe have been on more unfairly called up than any other team i think it's just kind of what we recognize from following this team so i won't blame it on the on the on the officiating i just can't even though obviously like it's easy to see it's a terrible decision to make that call on deandre baker but not make it on ingram last game but yeah it it was like rubbing salt in the wound because it was right after too but i don't know if stan's blaming the officiating no he's not yeah yeah so i just he's just alluding to how they're been really bad this season and i think they're just really they've been really bad since for as long as i remember (laughs) Yeah, and listen, Stan, I actually think that overall, if I'm answering your overall question, I think overall NFL officiating has been the worst this year that's been in a while. And I think a lot of the good crews retired uh, over these past two off seasons, and that's made a big impact on the game. And I've always been a big, big believer in these referee crews should be 25 to 35 years old and no older, and they should age out because they're fa- when you're younger, you have faster, you're, you're faster, you're quicker with your eyes, everything. You're, you're just better in noticing the game. I also kind of think screw all this and i would rather us use almost like robots and ai to referee these games at some point because the spotting is the worst part to me of all football i think there's so many misspotted plays by the nfl referees not just the ones you see on like third and one that that were messed up it's just like a yard here a yard there that just gets gets poorly spotted throughout the game sometimes two yards at a time and just i don't see why we don't have like ai showing us where the ball was spotted i just don't understand it in a game like this that comes down to inches a lot of the times but you know that's a whole nother story for probably a whole nother podcast bobby madelon asks is the game plan for the offense more on shula or Shermer? also i understand there is no talent on defense but the players just look completely confused in the system why hasn't betcher been fired yet yeah it's more on Shermer. Not Shula. Dan and I have yeah. talked about. We're not really 100 percent sure what Shula does. I'm sure <laughs> no, he has. I'm not. I'm sure. sure. I don't know if he's a glorified like offensive uh, quality <laughs> control coach or what he yeah, does. He's not calling the plays. So, and I'm not trying to disparage the man. It's just really I, I'm not 100 percent sure. We I'm don't being see any really influence of his offense in Carolina in this offense. That's all we're saying. And like, what's why was he brought in if it wasn't to use what they used there for McCaffrey uh, with Saquon in the passing game? I, it just blows my mind. Connect the dots. He's friends with Gettleman, but that you know, is, whatever, yeah. whatever, I uh, whatever. But anyways, yeah. And when it comes to Betcher's scheme, I, 
it's a complicated scheme, Bobby. It's just a complicated scheme, and there's a lot of young players who don't have high football IQs yet in this scheme. And I see there's probably veterans who don't fully grasp the scheme. We've heard Janoris Jenkins kind of talk about how it was complicated as well. It's been a successful scheme, but you need a cohesive unit, and the defense just is not cohesive right now. Yep. No doubt about it. Um, let's see. Samuel Lawrence asks, what coordinators could we target in the future? We need a bit more creativity. I mean, we went into this. Jay Gruden would be my top call. Uh, I'd have to look into it more to see any other guys. I really would have to take a much deeper dive personally. Um, yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of the big names that we're going to be hearing about coming soon when uh, Black Monday comes up and all that, they're all coordinators already, so they would never just make a sure. lateral move to be a coordinator. They're all going to be jumping up to be head coaches. Sure. No doubt about it. So that that that's something that we would probably need more time for too. Um, Mike Meyer, Mike Meyer asks, how much, if any, percentage of the seemingly sorry, that's uh, all good. Now you said Mike Meyer, so I was doing oh, the Halloween song. Oh, shit, I didn't follow that. Fuck. <laughs> right. Just keep going, bro. All right. Mike Meyer asks, how much, if any, percentage of the seemingly poor offensive tackle play has to do with Daniel Jones holding onto the football too long? which can be a common rookie problem. Yeah, uh, he definitely holds on to the ball too long, stares down his first read way too often. It's also offensive line missing blocks, missing stunts, being too late to stunts. But there have been plenty of those fumbles that Daniel Jones has had that was on Daniel Jones. So that's going to be a rookie quarterback problem, as you said. And he's going to have to correct. He's going to have to get the ball out of his hands faster there, Mr. Mike Meyer. But I do believe uh, hopefully that will progress with time, as we've kind of said. But, yeah, it was a concern of ours going into the draft with Daniel Jones because he had a lot of fumbles and things like that in college because he was surrounded by shit talent at Duke when it comes to looking at the NFL. So, yeah, it's definitely something that's concerning, but something that is correctable and just needs to get the ball out of his hands faster, go through his progressions a little bit faster, not lock onto his first read, etc. Yeah, I mean, to me, Mike, and to be fair, it's M-A-H-E-R, so we don't want to kind of classify you with that, Mike Meyer. But to be fair, Mike, I actually thought I'd see that, too. A lot of people were talking about that. I haven't seen that as much as that's kind of been publicized. I don't think that's really – I mean, the the first read thing happens sometimes, but most of these plays, it just doesn't have much time. Um, there's been a lot of blown uh, protections by Remmers and Solder and even, you know, on the inside, Jalapeo on some plays. So and, – and this game, Zeitler. So um, I think part of that is that. Uh, Eric – Ezra, I should say. Sorry, Ezra. Ezra Sackle asks, is there any reason to keep Betcher around at this point? I don't know what the game plan was this week, but his attempt to stop the Cowboys run game with only two in defensive interior linemen was laughable. Yeah, it wasn't something that was great, I'll say, but the Giants were in base personnel more than they have been in the last couple yeah, of weeks, having three big linemen out there. And I think Leonard Williams' addition, maybe we'll see a little bit more base personnel just because he's a little bit more interchangeable than the other three defensive linemen that we have. And that's one thing about Betcher that I'm not in love with is the fact that we are in that 2-4-5 defense a lot, and the linebackers are really weak, and the outside linebackers we have are kind of thin when it comes to football players. They're not you know, beefy, I guess you could say. But I don't think Betcher should just be fired for this. I think you still got to give it some time, and I hope that he will adjust, and I hope as the Giants get more personnel next season, they can kind of formulate a better defense around his scheme, and hopefully you know, the training camp can get these guys up to speed on what he's actually looking for. You got to think if you're DeAndre Baker, if you're Corey Ballantyne, even if you're Sam Beal, you're going to training camp, and A, you're dealing with injuries with some of these guys, and B, it's your first time in NFL, this environment, so this is all new to you, so you haven't had time to adjust. And when you're thrown into a complicated scheme and your practices aren't as 
in abundance as they were back in the day, as I said before in the podcast, it's going to take an effect on you. It's going to affect your play. It's going to affect your mental ability to process the game, and it definitely has. But I don't think Betcher should just be fired right now, as I've said a couple of times. But I do hope this defense improves. Yeah, I mean, like Nick said, I mean, there actually was an uptick in the in the amount of defensive line. They had 48 snaps for for Lawrence that led the way, like we said, 45 for Leonard Williams, then 35, which is which is more than the third most defensive interior guy played in any game before this. They tried, but again, like the big difference here is the Cowboys were able to get away with those two backers at the second level against the run. The Giants weren't. The Giants made some good adjustments. I thought at halftime to stop the run game. They stopped the run way better in the second half than the first half. Um, mm-hmm. But. But I mean, at the same time, there it's just that it's just a matter of they need to improve at that second level. Eddie Finnerty asks, DJ seems to be hanging in the pocket too long. Is this a result of the receivers not getting separation, or is he processing information too slowly in the pocket? At Duke, he seemed to process slowly at times and lock onto one receiver, and it seemed like he's doing that again now. Yeah, I do feel like he locks on a receiver, but I also feel like Shermer, some of his play calling, are longer developing routes, and that forces dj to hold on to the ball naturally a little bit longer but it's again offense you got to look at it as a whole i think it's a combination of that play calling and the fact that dj kind of does hold on to the ball a little bit too long and he doesn't get off his first read quick enough he needs to get off that first read quick enough he needs to see what the safeties are doing and he needs to kind of slow it all down which is easier said than done me sitting in my chair talking into this fucking microphone but it's something that will come with time hopefully slow it down a little bit more and yes at duke it was all about timing you know hit your back foot get the ball out of your hand i'd like to see a little bit more of that and you've seen some of this with evan ingram on those quick little hitch those quick little curl routes those quick little choice routes quick little slant flats that we see as a two route combination but overall i do think daniel needs to kind of as we just as i just said slow it down a little bit while getting the ball out quicker if that makes sense Yep, that makes totally makes a lot of sense to me, Nick. And Eddie, I think you know a lot of this is like Nick said. It's pretty simple. He needs a lot, a little bit more time, and it's gonna it's gonna pick up for him. And like you said, the separation thing is an interesting point because um you know next gen stats show the Giants wide receiver group is creating less separation than almost any wide receiver group in the NFL this year. But some of that for me, Eddie, goes back to that. I just think this offense shouldn't be designed the way it is. It's designed right now to the point where you need these wide receivers to make a lot of the plays and to create a lot of separation. If you had designed the offense through Barkley and Ingram, they would, they would have a lot, they would have a lot, a lot more variety of passing plays, both of those guys. And they would have a lot more easier throws for Jones that don't require the same kind of separation or that have separation created by the scheme. And by the way that you're, because you just look at some of the ways that everybody knows when Calvin Kamara is on the field, that Sean Payne's going to throw him the ball a lot, but he finds ways to get him separation and get him open. Anyway, everybody knows Christian McCaffrey is going to be a receiving threat, but they find a way. So this is not rocket science and it's not impossible. And you look at some of the tight ends in that same, in that same uh, breath, you know, some of the ways the Eagles get Goddard and Ertz open. Why can't those ways be applied to Ingram? Some of the ways that the Chiefs get Kelsey open vertically. And there's a lot of instances of good coaching at the tight end and running back position. So this offense to me should run through those to the point where the wide receiver's ability to create separation is less important. But that's not how it is right now, it appears to me. Um, Bobby Madeline will end it on this one, Nick. It's our last question, a heavy question show, which is always great. We love you guys participating. Ask why, and this is a fun question, I think, to end it on. Why do the Giants keep pounding Barkley up the middle? It's obviously not working. I do not have an answer for you, Bobby Madeline. I understand trying to establish the run, trying to run off of Zeitler's ass or run off Jalapeo, Hernandez's ass through the A-gap. I understand that in theory. 
it has not been working. You're right, Bobby. I would like to see more horizontal runs, more runs out of shotgun, things that we already talked about, not this tight personnel, motion the wide receiver in, bring more people into the box because the offensive line has had significant trouble locating at the second level, and Barkley hasn't shown a lot of decisiveness. kind of like bringing it full circle. We talked about this in the beginning of the podcast, and now we're talking about it at the end of the podcast, and I'm not really 100% sure why we just keep doing it. I can understand early in game, see if it works. It's not working, but it seems like Shermer has been a little bit persistent with this idea yeah i think part of it is just he loves this inside zone and he just wants it to work and it just doesn't seem to be working so i agree with you there needs to be more variety in the run game but i can't answer that question for you because i don't know the answer and it's a big issue i have with Shermer myself but on that note guys thank you again for tuning into the podcast uh we will be back this sunday after the game it's going to be a late night show. I'm going to be working at the game actually for Giants, Jets, Sam Darnold versus Daniel Jones. I'll be at the stadium trying to do a story on those two. But we will do a quick reaction pod. Those will be those will return this week. Um, me and Nick were just not able to do it this week after the Cowboys game uh, for various reasons. But we will be back, and that will be a part of the show. Obviously, we'll have the All-22 breakdown of that game. We'll talk about Darnold. We'll talk about Jones. Thank you guys again for tuning in and really participating heavily in this podcast. This was a heavy question show. If you want to help support the podcast, you can always do so by telling your friends and family about it. Any Giants fan you know, rating it on iTunes is huge. If you download on iTunes, it's even better. Subscribing, same gig there. iTunes is key for us. It helps us move up the charts and get more listeners and build a better show. So thanks again for tuning in. And as we like to end it, as always, go Giants. Go Giants.